Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A here at Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur and I am the aforementioned host, Isaac Arthur, and today we are joined by my beloved co-host, my wife, Sarah Fowler Arthur. Hi Sarah, how are you doing today? Good, thank you, husband. <laughs> so, we uh, we had just gotten back from a trip that basically after the last episode had premiered, we went to Michigan and we, uh, very long drive, because uh, it was the far side of Michigan and back in, we just got in, what, at three o'clock last night? Three in the morning, So yes. I hope everyone forgive me if I'm a little bit sleepier than I'd like to be today. It's It's definitely... A cloudy, sleepy day. So seven-hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> so as usual, we'll be taking your questions from the chat, and uh, Sarah will be reading them off to me. Uh, and again, as always, uh, our moderators will take those and post them over to her to read. Uh, aim for legible and compact, so that we can get through those, and of course, uh, keep them civilized and stay away from needlessly controversial topics of the current modern day. So. <laughs> Or long, although we're going to make an exception and kick off with a long one that you actually received via email since the last uh, chat. So this one is from Merv Johnson, and he says, Hi Isaac, I have a question that might be a little hard to fit into a super chat. You mentioned before the idea of docking a spaceship like an RV to the outside of a rotating spin Habs drum so that the crew could just walk up into the basement of a house or a mansion. This is a really cool idea that I love and might borrow in sci-fi writing, but you also suggest wrapping any rotating habitat in a non-rotating sleeve to protect it and serve as a second layer of security against leaks. So how can a ship dock to the outside of a drum if it has a non-rotating protective sleeve? So that's a bit of a trick on this one. As we're thinking of in this case of a rotating drum like this is having you know, probably a number of, of hexag- you know, hexagonal squares or squares around the outside that are all module that you basically pour a ship into it and then race up through the ground as, like, your house mansion um, that you could take and move away, much as you can also potentially move these habitats from one conglomeration to another, and that's kind of a critical one. We always say with these habitats, don't picture them really as actually free-floating in space with windows exposed to sunlight. Um, that's possible, but and it's good for visualization, but more likely it's a drum encased inside something else. And we usually say another thin drum right around it for simple conceptual purposes, but there's no real necessity for it to be another thin drum. It might be a great big old sphere, or a great big old buckyball, as we talk about with the, like, the buckyball habitats, which look like a soccer ball, you know, those little pentagons and hexagons that they have on the outside. Um, you know, those those uh, faces, those exterior lines between them, that might be your rotating habitat, and then you've got the shooting outside, so it forms kind of a buckyball or, you know, carbon-60 allotrope look to it, and uh, those are the individual lines connecting them. Uh, so you could actually just bring a ship in through something like that and then port it in. The trick, of course, is that you, you are bringing a ship on to try to connect to something that's moving, which it might be moving very fast indeed. Uh, you know, a lot of these things are going to be moving at Mach 1 Ohio type speeds. Uh, so you might do that by having like a winch tether that was on the outside that uh, kind of dragged the thing around it up to speed as it went and kind of then linked it in. But it would be a little bit tricky. I think the idea, though, is is there are ways you could solve that. Some might be a little bit easier than others. But I think that you'd end up having that as a big priority for people to do because the ability to move the whole habitat from one conglomeration of habitats to another and the ability to move your individual house from one habitat to another really does change the kind of the layout of people's, I'd say, kind of personal freedom inside the community. You know, they don't like the way things are being run, they can go to another one, whereas it lets others experiment more with ideas that don't necessarily have to fit with what, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of most folks would want. It lets you have that more of that very specialized niche application, which I think as long as that's voluntary is kind of where we tend to want to aim for society in most cases is, is communities that are very specialized to the needs and wants of their people, which are going to vary a lot, especially if they can move. So I think that's one of those problems they've been working very hard to solve. So uh, Merv also had a PS that said, great job on the Megastructures Compendium. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was our first one uh, that we'd done with a co-narrator, barring a couple of times we had somebody like uh, John Michael Godier or some of us we were collaborating with to some voiceovers in the episode. 
Um, and even that, we don't do that often. Um, I think we, I'll probably do that again for another long episode at some point. I'm guessing we either do one like spaceship propulsion again, you know, to revisit that with a big long list, or redo the Fermi Paradox Compendium, redo a Fermi Paradox Solutions to kind of update that to all the ones we have thus far and put a little bit more of a category of structural. If, of course, I can get my wife to agree to do another narration. So, <laughs> it takes a lot of practice and repeats to do those. So. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so maybe we should follow up here with this other question first, which is from Crossover Maniac. Thank you for your super chat, Crossover. And he says, when will you do a show on a magnetic drag sail for slowing down an interstellar spacecraft without propellant, letting a spacecraft burn most of its fuel to accelerate towards its destination? Um, geez. I was about to say, well, we could probably put that right into the schedule list, and it actually is kind of tempting to do, because we should look at, you know, but... I might be easier to do an episode on decelerating spaceships or something like that. That would be a that would be a pretty good one to look at. Is either mag sails, um, you know, or other ways to slow ships down because that's that's the main interest there. There's nothing you can do with laser beams. You can't do with like um, electronically charged particles. It's just hard to keep them in a coherent line for long distance. A lot of ways they work a lot better, um, but uh, they help a lot for slowing ships down. And it is, it's not something that we skip on on the show because we don't think it's a good idea. It's really more one of those ones where a lot like we almost never have any graphics for showing laser propulsion. We have none for that either, either and it's, uh, or maybe like one or two. And a lot of these ideas work a lot better if you can put them up on the screen for people to see them. Uh, magnetic sales for decelerating, though, you know, as a concept, it's simple enough. You are using charged particles to slow down just like you would drag a veil. And it's a great approach if it can work. But a lot of times it depends on the local density of the medium and that. That varies by a factor of a million or more, depending on where you're at in the galaxy. So, it's a good approach, though. I think maybe maybe the Selene spaceship should be an episode we do. All right. Um, Michael Ines wants to know, how could a brain interface, a brain computer interface simulate... Let's try that again. How could a brain computer interface stimulate many organic neurons at once in order for you to be able to see and hear virtual things does that make sense uh yeah how could a uh, brain let's see but yeah let me try it up. okay how could a brain mental neural interface uh stimulate all your neurons to give you like perception yeah. you got a little net of, of electronics in your head that's trying to give you augmented reality let's say as or virtual reality either either one um, and it's trying to show you things, and we were actually talking about that the other day, but I said, be, you know, if you're very sensitive to blue light, one answer is try to tape over all the little light sources in the bedroom, uh, <laughs> to get rid of them. Um, eh, random conversation, this doesn't come up. Uh, and, uh, you know, another way is just to make it so you can shut down your blue neurons or turn their sensitivity down by just kind of, like, thinking it, right? Now that you oh. mentioned it, I noticed that this little camera that's staring at me has a blue light right between my eyes. Yeah, once you notice it, it's, it's definitely right there. It's <laughs> quite annoying. <laughs> Mine doesn't. The DSLR camera just stares at me with a big thing that says Canon, and then it kind of points at my face. <laughs> uh, for those of you who haven't done much in the way of live streaming or camera stuff over the years, there are like a million weird little things that, that, that distract you doing these, and one of those is any sort of glare or dot on it, so... Are you actually wrapping tape around the, the webcam right now, Audrey? No, go ahead and okay. ask your question. <laughs> so, so the idea being that these are electrically stimulated. Uh, so a little tiny electric current, you just have to know which ones to simulate. And the lead doesn't have to be big. And a big thing to remember is that your neurons are very tiny. So you can still have 100 billion of them in your head. They are still way bigger than a few atom-thick uh, string of, like, platinum, you know? We, we can make very tiny cords. We've always been able to do that. You know, we've, got, we've been doing that for actually centuries. We would be things that are smaller than neuron like. Um, but, or width, I should say. But uh, we can make very tiny wires that sink in and touch an individual neuron if we want. But we probably don't have to. It's kind of that difference between, like, um, if I'm trying to stimulate your, your specific optic nerves, that might require, especially if I want to do a high-definition high pattern, that might require touching individual uh, nerve lines, neurons, cords, and things like that. Um, neuron cords. I can't remember what those are called right now. So, nerve, nerves. Alternatively, <laughs> uh, something like a mental keyboard, you know, that can be an entire region of your brain that just stimulates and you just kind of learn to cast your thoughts that way in the same way you learn to cast your finger towards the A button or the B button on your keyboard. It wouldn't even be that tricky. We've already gotten, you know, chimpanzees to do it, so it's probably easier for humans to, with the ability to constantly know what they're about. 
And then you just have a way of doing that. And say with uh, like a lot of those, whatever you're doing for interaction, you want it to be something you wouldn't ever do accidentally, which is why you're not really trying to find the bit of you that would mentally stimulate your hand to move like this uh, for something that was controlling something on screen. You know, that might be more intuitive, but it's not what we want. We don't want you to accidentally do that at nighttime when we're not thinking about it. You want something that's deliberate. Like, I'm never going to accidentally reboot my computer by accidentally hitting Control-Delete. So we want to make sure anything we're doing as a control system for those is never going to be accidental. You know, it's, it's a 3000 remote button keyboard that you've learned how to use. You're not going to accidentally hit anything on it. I hope that answers that question. Yeah. And that blue light is still staring at me. <laughs> I was trying to wrap a Kleenex around it, yeah. but I couldn't get it to stay. <laughs> I'm trying to think where there's tape at, but... <laughs> I don't know. I thought about putting my finger over it. You put but, it over the know. break on it. <laughs> So the next question is from Benjamin Hogan. Hi, Isaac. Laser sail propulsion is something you focus on for interstellar highways, but wouldn't ramjet ships that essentially ride a trail of pre-positioned fuel pellets eliminate attenuation? Attenuation? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, we do talk about the ability to send light beams out from, from our sun all the way out to these locations as either a single beam or through relays passing on, but... Really, when I'm talking about laser sails, what I mostly tend to envision is that you've got stations along the way, relay stations along the way that are sending out beams that they create from local power production from fusion or black hole generator or something like that. That works best. Or you could do it with fission even too, but but it's the idea that you could still do other things. Um, and often with the laser sails, you can interchangeably put that in there with like matter stream or, or pellets. Like, but those fusion fuel pellets that's getting, for instance... Uh, that works too if you have fusion. But if you have fusion, why not run a big fusion reactor and skip the entire issue of sending that pellet ahead of them? Uh, because that pellet needs to be moving at speed too, right? Mm. If you're trying to to send a beam out that that pellet needs to overrun the ship, which means you need to magnetically launch it out, or be moving at such a speed that it's not taking kinetic energy away from the ship when it runs it over to eat it, and doesn't blow a gigantic hole in the ship, when they collide at thousands of kilometers a second. Small detail. Yeah, <laughs> big detail. <laughs> but you, you really don't have that issue with so much with either a laser beam or particle beams, but the problem is that a particle beam attenuates way faster if it's charged particles because positives and positives aren't going to like each other and going to go away. Positive and negative are going to attract and combine into something neutral, and so you really can't keep a tight beam of charged particles. It works well, though, if you can get to work, but, you know... So that the, the context we usually talk about laser beams, though, is I do tend to use that as a catch-all just for being shoved on by something. You can place that like a tractor beam if you want to. It's the idea that you're not following the rocket equation there. I think this one is a little bit similar to one of the questions we already answered, but just in case there's anything you wanted to add. Mm -hmm. um, Void asks, would electric or magnetic sails be good for decelerating a relativistic ship without needing any infrastructure in the system ahead of time? Popular topic to... Uh, <laughs> so um maybe we should be doing that episode yes and no um i i will say it is always going to be better to have that infrastructure in place and i it, we would say normally that well being able to decelerate with those charged particles that are already in the system because it's full of ionized particles right uh is a really good way to do that and that's true right and you want to take advantage of that but the other one we discussed on that would be like if you're doing laser sails you launch something slightly ahead of your vanguard fleet so you're you're Ship is going, it pops forward, something that looks like a big compact sail, and in the process it slows low. That sail runs forward, expands, and slows as it approaches that star from solar pressure, right? It's being pushed back in, so it slows down. And it takes all that light and turns into a beam and hits something behind it. In this case, possibly another sail being launched from that ship that's doing this as phase two, going to be slower, or possibly the ship itself. You just do a string of those until the ships are slowed down. And basically that ends in a stalazor around the star before you arrive. That you've built and just is arriving as, as you know a day ahead of you as war um and uh you know those are options that are available too but it's it doesn't always have to be one or the other one caveat is is it's often really hard to do hybrid engines on things where it's doing two or three of something else because you have all that extra hardware devoted to doing x y or z um you know i would be nice to have a a, a call that ran on electric propane um you know gasoline ethanol and all those combined but you did end up with a car that had half the mileage of a current one from you know doing that as a war so that could be an issue with spaceships too that you couldn't really hybrid and you had to go with which one's best 
However, I, I tend to suspect that that would not be the case, that you would actually be using an entire like, ecosystem of different options for slowing down these. And it's because they depend on which system you're in, any given fleet might have a you know, different alignment and plan. So, Modern Solutions says, Hi Isaac, the Discworld by Terry Pratchett, two things are inevitable, death and taxes. Life extensions challenge the former, but how about the taxes? I would say even even with life extension, you know, it's not it's not really immortality. Even when we say immortality, it's not an infinite period of time. So death is still inevitable. It's just, you know, maybe it's in a thousand years or a million years or a billion years or maybe it's even in ten to one hundred years when the last black holes run out or iron stars, that number's still nothing compared to infinity, so it's not actual immortality. But uh as to taxes, that one does come up in like a post scarcity context is is um if you have an infinite amount of money, or if you got the the Star Trek 3D replicators that can produce anything, um, you know, public 3D printers, do you still need something like taxes? And I think that's that's that idea that a post-scarcity environment, when we talk about it on the show, we always say, there's always going to be some things that are scarce, you know, because there's, there's human needs. That's why we switch over to usually something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where it's, what do people want? Basic survival needs are at the bottom of the low, and then you get up to more complex things like friendship and love and romantic relations, etc. And you don't really have an ability to remove scarcity of all of those kind of elements. There can only be one number one champion, unless you have a scarcity of truth, because everyone's been uh, deceived via, like, their own personal brainwashing machine to think you're the best of everything. Uh, you know, those are options there. A lot of things to be done in a virtual war environment that would otherwise be impossible, too. But you end up with these kind of concepts where we say, it's not that there's an absence of scarcity, it's that most things are so easily obtained that are important to people that they are not a source of major anxiety, which is, I think, what most of us care about anybody. It's not that we mind working for what we need to get or putting effort into things we want. It's that we, we don't like to see people get horribly distressed or depressed about whether or not they're going to be able to get these things at all. Um, in that kind of context, all of those systems almost always are going to imply some kind of taxation system, even if it isn't called that. You know, it's kind of like say, well... We don't have money at all in our Star Trek civilization. We just have something that's pretty much identical to it in every possible way, but we don't call it that. I think you probably have the same kind of thing with something like taxes, where if you got rid of it officially, you still have, yes, we all voluntarily, but not so voluntarily, contribute to this effort, whatever it is. So I think that that probably is inevitable, much like death. And so I think that Ratchet is absolutely right to say those two are inevitable. <laughs> A quick shout out to Sindri for helping me to uh, queue up the questions. We've got quite a few coming in here. Thank you, everybody, for putting your questions in the chat. And Sindri, thank you for viewing them for us. So the next one here is from Tuman. Isaac, how could we retrieve probes that we sent on a flyby mission through a system? Hmm. I probably should add that. Too. We have a lot of folks, and, and Sindri or Alex is, is absolutely one of the hardest working on the show. We have a lot of folks who put on. A lot of time in the show that you never see on screen, and 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 please, if you ever encounter any of them, you know, say thanks if you enjoy the show, or or not, depending on how you feel about it. But <laughs> if we don't enjoy the show, no, that's terrible. <laughs> if, if you don't, you don't enjoy, enjoy the show, the show blame it on them. <laughs> if you don't enjoy the show, find another one to watch and be happy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, keep watching. If you don't enjoy the show, keep watching till you enjoy it again. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> what was the question again? Tuman's question is, Isaac, how could we retrieve probes that we send on a flyby mission through a system? <laughs> you know, um... Maybe in well, the same way we should retrieve people who don't enjoy the show. Yeah. We just send them on a flyby mission so they can see more shows, and then they can come back go, go and enjoy Go watch more missions and just scan through them real quick and wait for the next one. <laughs> I guess that's kind of like the flyby mission's life is kind of like the show, is that we have a 30-minute show once a week, and a flyby mission is one of those things where it spends almost all of its time in route through boring space and then gets like a 30-minute like a window to look at a planet. Oh, um, last one's great, higher speeds. <laughs> And again, we, you can tell we were just done doing a lot of traveling ourselves. So. <laughs> Definitely a sleepy day. Um, so, sleepy. <laughs> folks ask, you know, like, well, do you think the Voyager probe is ever going to get to another world, or do you think it will ever be found by aliens? You know, as it goes 70,000 years in the next star system, uh, do you think, you know, that they're ever discovered? I say, no, I, I know what's going to end up happening to the Voyager probe. It's going to end up at the Smithsonian or, you know, the Armstrong Museum on the Moon or something like that. At some point in time, we'll go find that thing and bring it home to the place where it most belongs, which is, a, you know, an aerospace museum. Um, it's not like it's going to get any more work done in the meantime. It's 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 amazing how much we got out of that already, but, you know, 
it's not going to last 70,000 years flying through space. Um, but, uh, you know, would you ever bother to pick up your flyby probes? And I think in some cases you would. And you say, well, you would do a flyby probe of this star system. You know, 10,000 years later, maybe, that is a huge industrialized planet that, you know, that is a whole stellar empire of its own in that, in that solar system. It's got huge amounts of resources that dwarf anything a modern nation has. Does it go find that interstellar probe that, that flew by originally? You know, that, that you know, 20 ton little probe that flew by and documented the planet and, and that they named all their features after? And the answer, of course, is well, probably. Yeah, they're probably going to put some effort into finding that thing, right? And it's presumably built to last for centuries to be able to do its job in the first place, so there's a chance of finding it. Uh, although it could end up like the uh, the True Cross of the Crusades, as my art history teacher likes to say on that one, is they brought home so many shards of the True Cross on the Crusades, you could build one that was like 40 feet tall and thick as a tree. Um, you might have an awful lot of fake probes brought back to those museums or bits and pieces. This is the, 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 the well, we had what was the Nicholas probe or the uh, Louis probe that had gone to, um, you know, I just saw the probes episode last week uh, that had gone to that planet left. And, uh, you know, they come back and they, they've got so many little shards and pieces of it at the museum on left that you could build a museum out of a little bit. <laughs> um, so it'd be kind of hard to do authenticity in a lot of those cases, but I think there would be an effort to go get a lot of those probes. So we've got a lot of questions coming in about probes, but I'm going to skip over some of them at the moment and you mm -hmm. can come back to them in the chat later. Sounds good. Um, Milano wants to know, how would transportation work on a birch planet? For example, how would someone get from one side to another, and would the time dilation affect train schedules? Wow. Uh, you know, that is actually one of those questions that we... A, a, a birch planet is, in theory, a planet the size of Earth, although probably many levels of shells, right? But a single planet, birch planet one, is something like a fifth of a light year across. Or it could be a lot smaller than that, too. We always, the birch planet's meant to be anything that's a, a galactic core mass of like a million uh, solar masses or more, but... I think on the show, most folks tend to discuss it as the galaxy mass one, which is something like a million times heavier. Uh, it's just that whole range. But even the small one is is so huge compared to a Dyson sphere that it, it it's it's the idea that you never actually want to bother making a trip like that other than say you had wouldn't make much sense. It's not that huge of a distance, though. I mean, even the biggest ones on a light year across. So you can cover that distance if you can cover it to get built the thing in the first place. Uh, how you do it is hard to say, but we usually assume a lot of vacuum trains are in cases like this. I don't think about any piece of structure like this. You'd ever let anything move uh, at a relative speed uh, that was high enough to, to be, you know, nuclear if it impacted. So you might need to spend a century moving the other side of that thing, but you can, you know, you can imagine people migrating from one side to another on something like that over the course of millions of years. But they could, could cover in a lot of time that, even as huge as it is, just because scale. So that raises a question here from Peyton Turner. Is it possible that we can explore other planets while in the process destroying other planets like we are destroying the Earth? Um, I, well, I mean, you got to keep in mind when we say we are destroying the Earth, we mean the biosphere on Earth, the thin layer of slime covering it that is, yeah, this is a planet. Um, and it, it is huge. It is gigantically enormous and our whole ecosystem is like a kilometer of it, and even that is, is in most cases, an overestimate. Um, and so, when we say destroying it, people ask sometimes, what if we wreck this planet, can we go to Mars and terraform it, or if we could terraform Mars, would that make people more inclined to wreck this planet? You could nuke this planet till it glowed in the dark, and you burned off every last bit of air and ocean from it, and which would take huge amounts of energy far beyond what we could do right now, if we wanted to, uh, and yet it would still, still be easier to terraform that lifeless glass ball of radioactive, uh, you know, barren debris than it would be to terraform Venus or Mars. But terraforming a planet is also an inherently destructive thing in the first place. You do not learn how to terraform a planet. You do not do these things unless you can fix the one we're on right now as a war. Because you're talking about building an entire ecosystem from scratch on alien world with minimal resources that you belong. These are not easy things to do. They're somehow like, oh, yeah, let's discard the planet we were on because it's so much easier to go terraform another planet. That's not how that works, you know. Uh, as to can we explore worlds while damaging this one? Of course we could. Of course we already are. Right? Should we? Uh, well, obviously, not I, I would say the answer to that one 
is probably a big no, but, uh, you know, we can we? Yes. Yeah, we, we can certainly wreck this planet while exploring other worlds. Jacob says you've mentioned that you've been surprised by SpaceX's progress with reusable boosters. Any other examples that you'd be glad to be wrong about the rate of technological progress? Um, hmm. Not AI. I, I wouldn't really be happy if AI progressed faster than I, I thought it would. Um, I mean, I would love to see faster progress on any energy producing technology at all. Those would be the ones I, I would so love to be wrong about. As is, I do expect those to move reasonably quickly on the grand scale of things. Um, you know, I would, I would love to see almost any energy producing or storing technology, you know, prove me wrong about the speed at which it's developing at. Um, and in almost every case, there are very few technologies that I wouldn't mind seeing develop faster than they are now. But as a noted techno-optimist, I usually on the optimistic side of development timelines for these things anyway. So, you know, I wouldn't mind if we developed a way of doing warp travel, for instance. It's just that I don't expect that to be in the cards in a non-destructive bad way. But if we could get it like it is in sci-fi, oh yeah, great. I'd love that. So Israel Debro says, what factor of safety would you use if you were designing an O'Neill cylinder for yourself to live in? For myself to live in? Uh, I mean, if I get my whole one, like Gazi Isaacs from Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga, where he, the guy is insanely rich because he developed the wormhole gateway with a partner, uh, so basically as a patent on interstellar travel, so he had his own O'Neill cylinder built privately in an asteroid. Um, he's the only one who lives there. It's like his getaway. Uh, I have no idea what he actually had for his safety factor in that, but, you know, you, you want it built like you want anything else in engineering built as cheaply as you can while keeping it safe. And these are, you know, the, the, those margins are what we develop based on actuarial tables and actual experience. I work on the assumption that if a habitat is being built, it should be built along the idea that you can maintain it for less than, you know, less than a few percent of its actual original cost per year, right? Um, and that you can do so indefinitely. And that is one of those things where you, you want it solid if you want people to live there. They need to be confident that the floor is not going to fly out underneath them. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Especially if you plan on me living there with you. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> I, I choose to, I, I'm really not that anxious to leave this planet myself, so... Uh, <laughs> Chuchi says, how prevalent are climate apocalypse themes in science fiction? I guess that depends on which ones you've read. Yeah, no, I, I, well, it's a popular one. Um, there are things that are much on the human conscious, and they vary from time to time, regardless of what your opinions on those matters are individually. Like, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, the original 1950s film, was almost all about the idea of eternal warfare. Because they were just coming out of you know World War Two, not that long after World War One, and then the Korea and other things like that. So it was on the public mindset. Well, we've actually had a relatively peaceful time uh, in the last uh, what seventy years since then, relatively speaking, compared to other periods of human uh, existence. Uh, alternatively, I'm not sure what sixties and seventies would have had specifically. You see that a lot in Star Trek. There were a lot of themes there. Uh, there was always concerns of overpopulation. That I would say was the dominant theme of a lot of the sixties and seventies apocalypses that we were going to just keep reading our numbers up to we live in these these horrible concrete, you know, cylinder, you know, it's not cylinders, cityscapes across the whole planet that were barren and, uh, you know, awful place to live and you consist on cannibalism. We were in the 80s and I'd say, well, you had the court warfare still going on, you know, nuclear war killing everybody off, but also you start seeing, like, ozone was a concern then. Uh, very big concerns about ozone layer. Uh, and it's just, that's just, those are the dominant themes on a lot of sci-fi writers' heads, so they reflect themselves into the, the sci-fi at the time. Um, and sometimes that has a good impact on civilization for getting us to shift where we're thinking on, and other times it can be unrealistic in portrayal and things like that, too. But uh, it's good to have them discussed, I think, in that format. Scooter GSP says, even though it's not a perfect one-to-one -one analog to real Earth physics, do you think that the game Kerbal Space Program is a good tool for getting young people interested in space engineering? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, let's well, put it this way. Um, most of my actual geography that I have, I have a lot of geography and history because I learned out of games like Europa Univalis or Sid Meier's uh, Alpha Centauri, or sorry, Sid Meier's Railroads, like both of those games, or any number of other games that were not really that realistic, but they got my interest going for it. Uh, you know, the Anno series of games down in Discovery, um, those are not really all that terribly realistic economically, you know, where you just like, 
my whole population seems to live on things like apples and wood. Uh, <laughs> you know, all the old Warcraft ones where you, where you mined gold and I think it's crystals. Well, maybe that was total annihilation. Anyway, those simple economy games or those simple grand strategy games, they're not hyper realistic, you know. And the same applies for a lot of simulation games like trains or airplanes or spaceship programs, trade programs uh, like EVE Online. Um, of course, they're still handy, you know. But like anything else, just like sci-fi, you don't watch Star Wars and know how to build a spaceship, and nor do you know much about physics, but it doesn't mean that you might not decide you want to learn more about them. So yeah, I love realism these things, but I don't like it to be a straitjacket to prevent people being creative about it, or you create good books or games or movies, etc. Well, with that, it's time to take a break. We're going to come back, though, and be talking about orbital rings, the Fermi paradox, and genetic modification, so... Wow, sounds awesome. Stay tuned! So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great chance to grab a drink and a snack. We were also on break from our normal livestream last month while I was at the International Space Development Conference hosted by the National Space Society, and we broadcast my talk to them live at our normal livestream time. You can catch the replay of that, but it's the talk that inspired me to redo our original episode on Megastructures as the two-hour feature film-length episode, The Megastructural Compendium, but also to write another episode, Planets vs. Megastructures, which is over on Nebula right now. It was a great conference and a great place to get some new ideas for episodes, and I wanted to thank them for hosting me. I also want to give a shout out to the Ohio Aerospace Institute, where I gave a talk about a month back on biotechnologies, and NASA Glenn Research Center for giving Sarah and I a tour while we were there, which was the first one they'd done since before COVID. It was fun doing some live appearances and talks again, but I'm glad to be back to our normal format of answering questions in the chat. Still, we do often miss questions for time constraints, and you can post those in the comments on the livestream afterwards. We had one after livestream from Jolly Blonde Giant asking, Hey Isaac, you've mentioned Kugelblitz Black Hole Drives in a previous episode, has anyone thought about how Singularity would be contained and moved along the ship? And that's a great question and also related to folks wondering how we can move a star via Shikata Thruster or similar without touching them physically. The short answer for Kugelblitz Black Holes or other larger ones is that we usually assume three ways of pushing on them. The first would be by magnetics, as any rotating black hole, which is essentially any natural one, and usually any artificial one you can make too, can also have a charge on it. All it needs is slightly more protons than electrons or vice versa. Now it's charged and moving and that means it has a magnetic field and is subject to them, so you can shove on them magnetically. The alternative methods are to shove on it with either a beam of particles, like the fuel you're placing expended energy with, or a beam of laser light. And none of these are exclusive, incidentally, you can use them in tandem, and indeed the Kugelblitz black hole derives its name from an assumption you're creating a micro-black hole by large pulses of photon energy delivered to a single point in space and time of sufficient density to create a black hole. We tend to think of black holes as something nothing can escape, and this isn't really part of the core theory on them but more of a mostly accurate but simplified popular commentary on them. In fact, it's really hard to get anything into one in the first place, which makes feeding them with beams of light, let alone charged particles, fairly difficult. Alternatively, switching over to moving stars briefly, one thing that does escape black holes is gravity, which you want to think of it philosophically or in metaphysical terms, also means the information of the black hole's mass, position, and velocity can escape from it. Gravity may or may not have a transmitting particle, the graviton, like light and electromagnetism have in the photon, or virtual photon, but nevertheless transmits between objects, and at the speed of light too, gravity and light move at the same speed, and so does cause and effect, and we can determine that by looking at how objects influence each other when moving. In the case of the Shikata Thruster where we place a ton of Neos orbiting a star, or statites or lagite equivalents, we can bounce light off some of them in the opposite direction and thus move them away from the star, but they are pulling on that star with their own gravitational force and that's what tugs it in their direction. In terms of net force, imagine a single statite mirror hanging over a star reflecting back toward the star in a wide cone, so much light went off on past the star. It's held in place by the sun's gravity and the sun's light cancelling out. But the net system now has more photons moving in one direction than the other, and just like any rocket, star and mirror both move in the opposite direction of that photon surplus, 
And that's how you move stars, not very high tech at all and a lot easier than moving black holes, though they are too, the physics and technology involved are surprisingly uncomplicated. Anyway, excellent question and speaking of those, let's get back to more of your questions and back to our show. And we're back. <laughs> Welcome back to part 2 for everybody and we'll get to some more of your questions in just a moment, but as I was mentioning, Sarah and I were traveling over the weekend to go to a wedding, by the way, so before I forget again, let me go ahead and congratulate uh, our younger sister Carrie uh, and Dustin Silman on their, their uh, wedding uh, yesterday afternoon. So, I mean, they have the uh, best times together and a long, happy union for my own part. I happen to love being married, so it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it is, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, jumping back in then to the question from Melancholy, how would you keep an orbital ring in a polar inclination, stationary compared to the ground, without using propellant to constantly change the orbit? You know, this is actually one of the episodes, and it's the next one I have to write uh, sometime in a couple of days on tethered rings, which is going to be an interesting topic to look at. They're a very similar concept to the orbital ring, but they they are. The, the active sport there is about keeping things rigid as opposed to keeping things up. And you do that by tethering it to the ground in that case, and it's the same here for precession. You can do an orbital ring around the equator that really doesn't process much uh, in of itself, but even then it's going to want to process a little bit or wobble a little bit if just left to itself because the planet's not a perfect homogenous sphere and because things will be touching the ring and moving you know, bumpy in. So what you do is you tether it just with like guy wires, and there's nothing too complicated there. Uh, the more you want it tilted off of that, the more you put it in a position where it wants to process, like you wouldn't pull the orbit, for instance, or anything that if you want to tilt it so it was covering, say, a pathway between Japan and, and Santa Monica, which I actually had done an example of when I was doing that conference for the Japanese consulate a few months back, um, then you need to really have strong tethers. However, uh, the kind of tethers you need for something like that are still something like graphene or Kevlar, they require a lot of strength. But nothing like you need for a space elevator. It's not even that same scale. So you can still do that pretty easily. And you just keep the ring in place in that way to avoid possession by anchoring to the ground with, you know, guy wires. And then you use those guy wires to either send power up to keep the ring running or, or to send people up and possibly right back down again. That's the cool thing about the orbital ring is it's not just for getting to space. It's your hyper-fast method of traveling around the planet, too. All right. The next question here. Thank you, Dara Cloak, for your super chat. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. What's the most likely solution to the Fermi paradox, in your opinion? Oh, um, that's the question as well. It's yours or mine. But we'll go with mine. Um, I officially am agnostic on the topic of what the solution to the Fermi paradox is. I think it's important that I stay that way, and it's it's not you know why um, that much effort either because I've never found one solution to the Fermi paradox that I was really happy with. Right. To me, it's not a question of what the best answer is to the Fermi Paradox. It's which one's the least worst. And we should probably definitely redo a, a compendium episode for the Fermi Paradox. So might have the mega structures one. Um, and uh, to me, though, the one that has the least flaws in it, it would be the rare intelligence camp, which we you know we discussed a lot on the show. Is is that it's not that life forms blow them up so you know sells up when they get technology so much as technology just doesn't get developed that much and whether that's because life is unique to this planet and there's no other place in the universe we'd find even a simple bacteria or whether it's just that the whole universe is swarming with animal life and plant life but nothing really with a big brain or it's all covered in algae i don't know but rare intelligence doesn't base on what's what the reason why it's rare is either because things just don't develop brains or they just don't develop in the first place but just says that overall you're rare they are and that, to me, is the one that has the least number of flaws in it. But again, least number of flaws in it, not great solution. <laughs> All right. Seaman Udun says, if one alien civilization is cautious, what do they need to do to communicate between their colonized systems without having their messages detected by other aliens? Um, tight beam laser. I, I should go on that point. We're saying best solution to the Void Paradox. If I had to phrase one, it's, that something that we think of as a fundamental truth about the universe these days, and it could be something really big, like, you know, if, if there's actually a real universe out there, or a simulation, or if evolution doesn't work the way we think it is, or any number of things like that, that's something we take for granted as a common sense piece of, you know, psychology, sociology, economics, uh, biology, or physics is wrong. 
that that's my best guess for the actual answer the Foley paradox. No idea which one it is, but just that all all understanding is missing something critical. We got something wrong, but um, same then for going to how do you send transmissions? Assuming you're limited to you know known physics that you have to send it by uh, by electromagnetic signal or hard copy by actually sending out a spaceship um, as opposed to something really cool like a gateway network or you know uh, some weird version of quantum entanglement that doesn't work like that but uh, but you know for that work you send messages that way tight beam laser from point A to point B would be a good way to do it and encrypted on a one-time pad one-time pads are unbreakable unless you actually have a copy of the pad it's not one of those things like well, they're unbreakable by any modern computer. They're unbreakable. That's just, they, you cannot break them through cryptography. Uh, you can get a copy of the pad, but that's it. And they look like absolute noise otherwise. If you do not have it, it looks going to look like noise. Any compressed signal looks as close to noise as you can get, too. That's a thing to keep in mind. It's the more you compress a signal, the whole idea of compression of any signal is to remove as much pattern from it as possible and say, this thing that repeated 20 times, we'll set a place with X repeats 20 times. So you remove so many patterns with it, eventually it looks like noise anyway. So a really good compressed message and a really good uh, encrypted message both look really close to noise. And a tight beam that was highly compressed and encrypted would basically look like absolute gibberish. And, you know, but you would still, and this is a key one, I do not have to know uh, what your email says, right? To be able to crack that email to know that you sent one. So it's not a question of like, am I hiding my signals? You're going to know that there's a lot of radio traffic out of a system, or there's a lot of, you know, tight beams moving out of a system, coming from scatter or things that are just weird, but you won't know what they say. So you do know that something is going on in most of those cases. Very weak, very minimal. And if you really want to keep people from knowing about your signals, the best way to do that is to keep them faint and keep them rare. So <laughs> that'd probably be the way we go with that. Valdarg says, considering the amount of genetic modification those living in space may require, what is your personal threshold for accepting some gene therapy or modification you're told that you need? Uh, I don't really have one. Um, you know, to me, these are things you do on a case-by-case -case basis. We are very right. I think we're very wise to contemplate all these ideas in advance, not so much for coming up with the right answer, but to avoid a knee-jerk response to them. A lot of times when new bits of technology come up as, as a moral issue, folks go in with an assumption uh, of, of, you know, they, they decide what the answer is supposed to be ethically, and they stick to that. And it takes a lot of time to peel that away. That hurt us very badly with nuclear technologies, for instance. But um, you know, if you read older science fiction, you'll find they all constantly worry about, like, how is someone really a human if you were to give them a mechanical halt? And to most of us these days, the answer would be, well, yes. Of course they're still human if they have a mechanical halt. Um... And once they go, even transplanting a hand from another person to another person is uh, the basis for a horror movie where the hands from some convicted felon who uh, was executed and then their body was divvied up to people on the organ donor list. And now it's going around committing murders. I think that was the, a, a multi-series horror movie plot. But when it comes to these things, my only real piece of advice is if you're talking about personhood. And humanity and personhood are basically, you know, change moralized these days. But, you know, when we're talking about whether or not someone is a person with rights, right, you want to set yourself up to, for something easy, probable cause, right? A toaster, I don't have to assume a toaster is, might be human. There's no reason to think it has thoughts and feelings. But if something hits that probable cause, so if I were like that Google AI recently, if it hits a probable cause where someone might think, um, this might really be a person, right? Uh, that that's a they're you know, not not a crazy idea. Then I would say at that point you really want to be approaching everything from the idea that you need to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are a person. That the burden of proof is on those seeking to make something not a person once you've established the probable cause that it is one. And so when we start talking about too much genetic modification that makes something not a human. You know, is a human who's got wings still a human? I don't know. It depends on how you want to say what's what. What is human? But are they a person? Well, I think the answer to that's probably going to be a yes, right? Um, you don't probably want to approach these things by you, you shouldn't be including everything, probably, right? There does need to be some line, I'm sure, but at the same time, err on the side of caution, and 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 when that involves whether or not someone is a human or not, is a person or not, probably don't be too 
uh, too quick to say, well, this thing that has like a, a half computer brain, for instance, or it doesn't barely even have any human DNA anymore, this is not a person, just because even though it acts like one in many ways, it, it, it doesn't meet this, this qualification we've said. There's a great treatment of that in The Positronic Man um, from uh, Isaac Asimov and Robert Silverberg that kind of looks at that issue in more detail. A little dated, but it's there. All right. So, and I think that kind of jumps us ahead to a, a, another question, then mm -hmm. I'll come back to uh, this one. So we have C. Stallion. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your super chat, uh, C. Stallion. How much do you... How much impact do you think the coming global, global demographic collapse and the resulting collapse of globalization have on the future of the space program? There's a projection of a billion deaths due to starvation, minimum. I think that is probably a very wildly high projection, to be honest. Um, but, you know, I'm not an expert to discuss, you know, how things like uh, globalization's economic impact is going to happen or whether or not we're going to be running out of grain this winter or something like that. Um, I think, though, that it, the, the question always comes up, do we need to be really unified as, as, a, as, a, as a civilization, as a, a world, to do something like space travel? And I would say, well, all the space travel we really got doing for the space race was very much not the product of unity. It was, you know, an outright competition uh, between two, you know, war-seeking empires. And at the same time, I think it always is beneficial to, if you can have peace and friendship, keep it that way, right? If you can be friendly with other folks, that, that definitely helps. But do not assume that we actually need any kind of unification to get stuff done. Uh, you know, we have a lot of historical examples where that was not the case. So hopefully we can not have to find out in that case, though. Almost mixed this gentleman's name up. So similar. Uh, Scott Seabrook says, Hi, Isaac. Can you think of any practical uses for our planetary Roche limits? <coughs> um, well, well, the Roche limit on a planet is essentially where, uh, where an object that's, that's self-gravitatingly bound, like a moon, uh, can, can be torn apart by the gravity being too strong on one side of the planet. So, like, if we were very close to another Earth, right, right near our surface, you know, if we were, like, touching with two double planets, the gravity that the one was exerting on the surface closest to it would actually be equal to what the gravity of that object was giving itself at that surface. And when you're talking about orbits and movements and things like that, that can start causing a planet to get shredded apart, or a moon where it would actually be stronger, right? There's a certain distance at which the, the thing is going to start falling apart from the outside. And moreover, if we're talking about something that's actually, like, planetary scale, you know, since it's not just a compact object, but it got all that tectonic activity and convectional motion and rotation, you could have some big issues as well before you got there, that level of gravity. As to where they'd actually have a practical example, you know, you don't build things to be self-gravitating that you plan to put near other big objects by and large, because the whole point of most of our megastructures is to save on mass. Um, I think maybe if you really want, you know, if you found that you really didn't like rotating habitats and you had an awful lot of mass to store, like dark matter because you figured out how to tap it, or uh, something like, um, you know, you just had a lot of hydrogen helium stored for fusion or black hole uses later, that maybe you build a lot of artificial plants of the classical spherical variety, uh, many layered ones, for instance, I could definitely see that people might want to have hard point connections between tightly locked ones. Way, way, way back, we did, uh, I think it was Habitable Plants Episode 5 from the old Habitable Plants series, that we did in like year one um we looked at double planets i've never repeated that episode i've really gone back to that topic since but that would be uh interesting one to look at is that was double planets and roche wars and what do you actually happen when you have like a dumbbell shaped planet so an old gem if you don't mind the bad visuals and audio <laughs> okay christian corello thank you for your super chat which aliens and spaceships from sci-fi are your favorite and why and also, between warp drive, folding space, and wormholes, which is the most achievable based on our current knowledge and latest research? There's a lot of sci-fi franchises to pick from. Um, you know, as a whole, like, my favorite sci-fi franchises tend to be very space opera-y, uh, whereas my favorite, like, aliens from sci-fi tend to be where it's, so, you know, it's not going to be like the Vulcans or the Klingons, where it's basically us, but a little bit more of a you know, warrior theme or logic theme. 
I like aliens that are hyper alien. Um, and not necessarily like Lovecraftian, not all the but Asdoth levels of Cthulhu, like crazy, but uh, um, very alien aliens. And uh, like one of like the ones from Peter Watts' Blindside novel, a very good example of just very alien psychology, as are some of the non alien entities in that book. Um, I don't know that I actually have a favorite though, because you know, the I like them because they're so crazy alien. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like you really like them much. They just you like them as a example. As to what was the other part? It was about warp drives, or mm -hmm. what was the also between a warp drive, folding space, and wormholes, which is the most achievable based on current knowledge. Um. Oh. Ah, uh, you know the, the I don't believe any of them are achievable by current knowledge. We have no obvious method for folding space and the way that people usually would suggest it, you know, in, as we looked in the folding space episode. Um, so I would say that we'd have to go to probably the warp drive um, as we actually could do negative energy hypothetically, whereas we, then I'd say probably the warp, warp drive, then warp horse and folding space in pretty much that order. But I, I would say that's kind of like, which is a more infinite number or what's, what's more impossible, this impossible thing or that impossible thing. Okay, so I'm thinking here that we have time for a lightning round. I was trying to make sure I got all the in-depth questions, and we have quite a few that are a little bit shorter, and I want to try to fit them in before the end of our time here. So, shorter answers, maybe like 30 seconds. Um, we'll start off here with Philip Murphy. If this channel had a membership, what would you offer? If this channel had a membership, what would I offer? Um... The cheerful sound of my own voice speaking to you for 30 minutes a, a week. I, I've never really liked the idea of too many specialized things for that. I often hesitate even with things like Nebula of having exclusive episodes. Like, there's one up on the screen right now. But, <laughs> you know, even that's the assumption we'll bring that over at some point for the main channel. So, But we did have, at least at one time, mugs and some of those. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, that we're supposed to be putting new merchandise out this upcoming month. It just depends on when Brick gets back to me about the, the visual mock-ups, so. If you're wondering for the purpose of merchandise, we've kind of downplayed that for a while because I got to be kind of unhappy with the company that was working with on that, but I wasn't quite to the point of cutting them off, and now they seem to have disappeared into uh, weird web spam. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Vincent Walden Rivera says, Do you think the car industry will go back to making boxy cars similar to those of the 1970s once most cars become electric and fuel economy isn't a problem? Um, wow. You know, I'm bad about predicting things like that, like the PT Cruiser. I thought that car was incredibly ugly, and I noticed that people want to drive that thing because it looked like a horse to me. Yeah, it's really popular. Um, I'm a sedan person, but I'm very fond of Humvees in my time in the surface, too, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, Owen Lewis, I'm curious what is your opinion on colonizing our solar system? Is it worth trying to live on the surface of Mars or worth trying to live on the high atmosphere of Venus? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's worth trying. <laughs> I'm a big fan of space habitats, but yes, I think it's worth trying. Uh, that, that's not a 30-second answer. That's a really <laughs> fast one. Okay, <laughs> lightning, lightning round. All right, all right, we're going. Uh, Dagger Coach, thank you. Hey, Isaac, following for years by this point. Many thanks for doing this. Could we push lasers in front of a laser-propelled ship to slow it down again? Um, yes, right. You could do that in-system. I'll give a longer answer on this one. Like, let's say I want to push a, a, a ship with lasers or, or some other particle be or beaming system from Earth to Jupiter. What I do is I go ahead and build a meal and I put an orbit around Jupiter gravitationally weighed down to it, which means its pressure can't be in excess of what, what that meal could be held to the gravity with. And then I shoot that laser off of that beam, you know, as I said, that ship to Jupiter. I shoot it towards Jupiter, bounce off that meal, which is gravitationally anchored to Jupiter, and then hit the ship with it to slow it down. That slowly moves Jupiter away, but it's kind of like trying to go, like, to a mountain. In time, the mountain could move. In practice, it be very patient. <laughs> <laughs> Sanabella says, what happens to professional acting once CGI and deep fakes get good and cheap enough to replace an A-list actor? Um, you know, I would say that you're probably always going to... I mean, 
if your AI is good enough to be able to actually do a really good performance, then it probably counts as a person again. It's not the zone where it probably you know gets that zone. Um, you know, doing voiceovers for the show, there's a lot to that. And I've been hearing, like, I remember, and I don't like to beat up any other futurists, but there was so much talk about how we'd have voice activated everything by the year 2010, back around when we, you know, the turn of the century. And as someone who had quite the speech impediment that was quite used to the voice technology we had, really gobbling anything I said horribly, uh, and they do that even now to some degree, though it's gotten a little bit easier, um, I never really thought they'd be able to get that that fast, and I was quite right. Um, one of those examples where I was a bit pessimistic on technology. I don't think deep fakes are going to be quite as, as, as big a threat as people think for these things. And the other follow-up I'd have on that is, when we first started getting Photoshop, you know, when that term started becoming the, the you know, a meme of itself, uh, people were worried that they would be constantly used for, like, bribes or blackmail and stuff like that. But while I'm sure that's happened here and there, it's never really developed that degree that every last thing is airbrushed and photographed, like people tend to think. I like these little memes that people are dropping in that say, keep it up with the little dancing dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those are new. I, I I can see them kind of in like the side bit of, of OBS over here, uh, or streaming as OBS. I see from Jamie Russell and Thomas Lysanke. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for the super chat and the little dude. All right, we've got a few more uh, lightning round questions here. Harrison Slocum, if a successful theory to unify gravity with the other fundamental forces of physics were found, then what technological breakthroughs do you think would follow this discovery, if any? Um. The fastest transit possible to Scandinavia to get a Nobel Prize. Um, you know, I, I, I reject the idea of, of the grand unified theory as a necessity. I, I would be happy if we got one one day. But I think there's this tendency to assume that we should be able to actually unify all the physical forces uh, just because we unified the earlier ones like electromagnetism to magneti you know, magnetism and electricity together or the weak nuclear force to that as well for the electro big force. Uh, gravity is such a weird audible. It's our oldest force and it's the other one we were the least about in many ways. Um, I don't think you have to have a grand unified theory for it to walk out. That being said, if you get one, and, and we well might, right? I don't know that we need one, but if, if it's, if, you know, I don't know what happens to be true, well, I'd be on my way to Scandinavia right now to pick my Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> and um, I think uh, if it was true, the big one you'd see from that is probably the ability to do controlled gravity, uh, any, any type of anti-gravity or focused beam of gravity type thing. Which we already know we can kind of do from some of our black hole border options. That would be the big one there. And if you got that, that is amazing. You know, why don't we done a gravity? Yeah, we did a see our anti gravity episode for more details. There you go. There we go. Autonomy. Thank you for your super chat. Actually, it's a very big super chat. Yeah, so I'll do three second questions. I either want to do one sentence or like ten minutes. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. One sentence works. Do you think the new graphite batteries that Tesla is apparently developing will be a major upgrade to battery technology? Um, you know, ever since the SpaceX incident, I try never to, to assume uh, anything where Elon Musk technology is all concerned. Because um, every time I think he's going to have something that doesn't work out, it tends to pan out. Every time I think for sure it's going to work, it tends not to. <laughs> that was the other <laughs> part of the question. Do you know of any issues that could hinder the technology? <laughs> I think that, that graphene batteries is going to be a very real thing. Although my personal suspicion is that another 2D material will turn out to be better. Individual applications, so graphene, awesome, but some other two D material will, will beat it out. This or that special usage. Um, see our two D, see our portable power episode for more discussion of how awesome such things would be. Crossover maniac, thank you for your super chat. Isn't the gray goo scenario unrealistic, barring nano machines transmuting atoms into elements that can be used to make more nano machines? How could they replicate on a hydrogen gas giant like Jupiter? Um, well, you could theoretically replicate the deep space habitats way, uh, you know, which is you fuse all the material into other, other metals. Um, and no, I don't think the gray goo one is actually, and I think there's a mistake here people make is to assume that the gray goo thing is meant to be an exact prediction. The idea is that if you have self-replicating machines, right, um, they're going to make more of the cells than that's all there is. Um, there are lots of ways that can break down on examination. It's not like it's not a threat, but obviously self-replicating machines can be quite a thing. As say, all planet presumably got green good at some point. Guy Haley, I think it was, he's one of the writers for the uh, Warhammer Hero 40k series. He did a novel called Belisarius Call the Great Walk. Um, it's one of those examples of, of surprisingly good sci-fi out of a series that's kind of toys for its bad science realism. In that, one of the things they point out, I think it was with the, the Necron self-replicators, is that you get layers of these things on top of each other. 
So what you have is the ones that are damaged or dead all buried underneath the ones below them until they get to the magma layer or the planet. Of course, the same thing applies there. They're not running on, on you know, sun power when they're layers deep, right? They're not running on, on they're going to get burned up and melted. So you get this kind of oozing layer and biosystem up on top of it. Um, I think that you have a whole ecosystem break apart at that point in time to, you know, ones that ate each other and stuff like that. So again, gray goo, I think, would tend to follow a green goo scenario very quickly. Christian Carello, thank you for your super chat. Would a motivation for genetically modifying humans to live on other planets be adding genetic diversity to humanity so that we don't become stagnant? Um, no. I, I don't think that civilizations that are technologically advanced care about genetic diversity at all. <laughs> They're going to care about diversity of thought, concept, uh, custom, etc. But genetic diversity is just like a little side note. It's like, you know, fashion diversity. It's not like it doesn't matter at all. It's just not really, a, a, you know... If you're a master's of genetic engineering, it's it's an interesting topic for you, but it's not really that pertinent because you're not worried about your civilization fire apart because your genes go bad. You're just going to tweak them as needed. <laughs> Philip Murphy says, if you wanted to do a video on RNA development, how would you cover it? To be honest, I probably wouldn't. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but the audience does not like all biology-based episodes that much. We do them occasionally when we need to, but uh, I think the with the low exception of our non-carbon-based life ep episode which is specifically not about normal biology. Uh, all biology episodes are not the ones that people really tend to enjoy as much. And maybe that's we get more biology questions on the live streams than we ever do on the uh, actual channel. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's it's not the folks don't watch all the episodes still, too, but maybe it's because it's not really my specialty. I mean, I was a biophysicist in grad school, but I didn't really enjoy it, so it's not because I kept up on much. Scaredy51 wants to know how you come up with new topics. Um, sometimes people randomly suggest them doing the live stream. Uh, so, and somebody said one earlier today, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, decelerating spaceships. So that's probably going to be some episode. Sometimes they come to me randomly. Sometimes I get them off the book jacket of one of my books that's the on my shelves over the other side. Uh, but I'm not going to rotate the camera focus. That never works out well. Uh, sometimes folks suggest them. Sometimes we do pours on them. We're about to run one on our Patreon. So, speaking of, coincidentally, every couple of months, I will ask the Patreon audience for episode suggestions. And then we'll run a poll over there, and usually I'll do one or two of the episodes do better there. And sometimes that's we, we see those YouTube polls where only I do five topics. I've often harvested those from either the Patreon group or our Facebook group. So if you want input on our episodes for those kind of polls, either join our Facebook group or Patreon group, and uh, and you'll have a chance to vote on those. And there's one coming up on Patreon sometime next week or so. SJ Bynes says, understanding the alien language... Um, what with AI being used more and more and becoming more sophisticated, plus dedicated hardware accelerated, perhaps we could decipher such a language given time. Um, I mean, I, I'm really not worried about being able to decipher alien languages, weirdly enough. I think what people miss a lot of our old languages, like uh, whatever they spoke in Harappa, um, you know, in, in, in that ancient Indian civilization. We, we are talking about having maybe 500 words that are not in a, a unified sentence in a place that didn't have dictionaries, spread over various towns that had slow communication done over centuries. Those are going to be very broken. If you look at something like Old English, you know, for instance, trying to actually read Old English script, uh, it can be very hard. And if you got one sentence from there, one from the 1920s, one from Australia in the 1970s, and those are your only examples, that's not really a crackable code. Alternatively, billions and billions of words coming through communications regularly from a standardized advanced civilization, probably a lot more crackable. So, so our answers in the lightning round got a little extended. <laughs> and well, we are we now, we're now a few I'm minutes past five. So, <laughs> so I'm going to wrap it up with just uh, a comment here from Devin Latson. Thank you, Devin, for your super chat. And he says, thank you for helping all of us fall in love with science and be more optimistic about the future. Well, thank you for that, that comment. It always cheers me up when I get things like that. As I usually like my favorites off of people or things like that or when I get somebody who writes me saying, I've been watching the show for years, and it got me to go into physics or engineering or something like that and study it. So, I actually met a couple of people who uh, who who were at the International Space Development Conference because they'd watched the show and got in that field. So, that's a nice feeling. So, <laughs> teaching is awesome in any format you choose to do it. I say. All right, so I guess we're gonna go ahead and close up there for the week. Um, and uh, I know there's some kind of it, it, too tired this week. I can't remember what I was gonna say as my closeout. We've had a great episode uh live stream we've had everybody stayed with us the whole time so thank awesome. you so much right. well thank you everybody and as usual thanks for watching and have a great week see you thursday
So that will wrap us up for the day. I oh, I remember what I was going to say. But if your question didn't get answered today, put it in the comments at the end of the episode, and I'll try to get to them or we'll use them as they open up for next month. And with that said, thanks for watching and have a great week. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.